Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Welcome. Welcome to Visual Workplace Radio. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hello. I'm your host, and we do this once a week. It's a weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. I'm really glad you could join us. In each of our shows, we look at some aspect of using visuality to embed the intelligence, our intelligence, our operational intelligence into the living landscape of work through visual devices and visual systems. We install a language. The language is the language of our current level of operational excellence. Even if we're not quite as excellent as we wish we would be or as we know we will be, we make that level concrete and specific by way of visual devices and many systems, by way of these physical solutions that hold the information that we need so it is there when we need it, we pull it to us, we capture it. And we see how our thinking in terms of devices functions. We see where it is strong and powerful. And we can also see, because of the physicality of visual devices, we can see where there may be a gap and we fill it. An information deficit. Information deficits are like uh, spirals. You hit the big ones and you keep going. You wind back and you hit other ones, and then maybe you come across an information deficit that you solved through a visual device, but you see some kind of micro deficit in the form of micro motion. Motion is the waste, moving without working. And then you address it. You either make your visual device more powerful or you make another device. And you tighten, tighten, tighten. It's like weaving a net. This net is of a physical language. It is the language of our performance. It is the language of our outstanding KPIs, but it is also the language of our culture growing stronger, more connected, more aligned, more powered, more eye-powered, both eye-powered in terms of seeing our eye, E-Y-E, but also eye-powered in terms of the contribution the innovation of the individual, eye-driven. That's what we're about. Welcome to the show. If you want to contact us, contact us through radio at visualworkplace.com, radio at visualworkplace.com. If you want to visit our website, please do. That is visualworkplace.com. There you can get free articles, you can download podcasts, and there's lots of stuff on our products and services, which we deliver deliver in some public arenas uh, throughout the year, but mostly on site. Mostly what we do is work with companies to create a visual enterprise. We deliver briefings and workshops, and we also do full company conversions, which is a sequence that takes about 18 months for um, a certain level of conversion to happen. We can talk about that another time. Or you can listen to my show on the 10 doorways and that'll kind of segment the visual methodologies in a logical fashion. Today, 
we are going to continue on a topic. It's a subtopic, really, of uh, a sequence I'm doing. I'm walking through my book, Work That Makes Sense. It won the Shingle Prize in 2000, and I think it was 2012. And Work That Makes Sense is operator-led visuality. It is how operators can be involved and actually take ownership of their work areas and convert them to visuality. And that methodology, which is called Work That Makes Sense, is captured in a book that's called Work That Makes Sense. And it tracks from zero to completion of fully functioning operator-led visual workplace. It's a really, really good methodology. I've been doing it for decades with great success. And as you've heard me say, 15 to 30% increase in productivity is the norm. And that's including in companies that have already gone lean, although the gains are in different aspects of um, an organization that's already committed to pull. So there's a, there's a variation on the theme there. And uh, where we find ourselves today, excuse me for, for the stumble, where we find ourselves today is in a detour of a detour. I am talking about becoming a brilliant, how one becomes a brilliant visual workplace trainer because the training function is very much part of the cultural conversion. It is what goes on in the training room and how the thinking that we call visual thinking is uh, how it unfolds and how it is presented in the kind of um, normative environment uh, where people are not only allowed to think, but taught to think and tested, and we have a lot of fun and a lot of innovation and a tremendous amount of ownership. And that takes a particular teaching approach, which I've discussed in the earlier part of this sub-series on becoming a brilliant visual workplace trainer. But that brought us to what goes on in the classroom, and what goes on is an inversion of the power structure. You can call it empowerment, but I find that word to be too casual um, to allow to go without really examining what does it mean to make operators, value-add associates, powerful, and where does that power come from? We began that particular aspect of the discussion last time, and I will complete it today. And if you were with us last time, then you know that I was discussing the two pyramids, very well-known pyramids, the top-down command and control pyramid and the bottom-up so-called empowerment pyramid. You can think of the top-down as yellow, just to keep it clear in your mind, with the general or the CEO sitting on top as a little circle and lining the bottom is a series of circles, connected circles, which will be either your foot soldiers or your value-add associates. There's a distance between the top and the bottom. And that distance is covered through, in the old-fashioned sense, command, giving orders, using one's authority to get things done and control, command and control or demand and control military model. It is 
based on the paradigm of obedience. And obedience in wartime is a very, very important condition of success. But obedience as a business concept or as a growth concept is much harder to come by and to justify. So that's the top down. The bottom up is you flip the pyramid, and let's turn that pyramid blue so we can make the distinction between gold, command and control, and blue, the empowerment pyramid. You flip that, and suddenly the leader is at the bottom, at the point of the pyramid, and the foot soldiers or value-add associates line the top. And the leader is there to serve the value-add associates. It's called servant leadership. It's a well-known, very well-practiced concept in many companies, but not in most companies. And in fact, when this discussion of the pyramids became very uh, rich and vigorous was in the 1980s, when the Japanese were telling us about empowerment and about quality circles and about operator involvement and employee engagement. And we wanted it. We here in the West wanted it. And we wanted it before we understood it. I suspect the Japanese knew that. And they allowed us to be superficial in our understanding and to really try to throw the command and control pyramid out, literally, to uh, disembowel it, to disconnect it from the organization, and to make the organization about, about primarily about participation. This was not a good choice, but it appeared to be the intuitive choice at the time because we were trying to solve with a quantum that, that, that we didn't understand to solve this thing about how do you get employees to engage? Well, let's give them all the power. But in fact, that that isn't the solution. It's a very, very interesting kind of conversion experience. How do you take the top-down pyramid and make room in the same organization for employees to be engaged, for employees to feel powerful? And what I began to discuss, and I think I, we got well into it last week, is what I discovered in the research that I was doing directly with companies, but also in the quiet of the night as I was trying to sort out, how it, does this happen? What, what am I looking at? What does it mean? What am I seeing here? And what am I not seeing? What does that mean? These, by the way, this is my favorite pair of questions when I'm, when I am assessing a plant or when I'm training somebody to assess a plant or when I'm working with trainers, uh, helping them to do their so-called homework before a training session. What am I seeing? What does it mean? Is the first set of questions. And the second set is even more rich. What am I not seeing? And what does that mean? So I was going through that, which has been kind of Um, a tool I've used for many, many years in my design of of learning and also in my consulting work with companies as I try to help them see more clearly, act congruently, etc. 
So I'm looking at these two pyramids, and what I realized, and I said to myself, as I said at the end of the show last week, where does the power come from that powers the blue bottom-up pyramid? The empowerment pyramid. Where is that power? And where is that power in in an organization that's traditional? Where is that power during the time when the company is still under a command and control model? Where is it? And that's when I realized that the power of the pyramid of empowerment was a prisoner of the command and control pyramid. That it was actually embedded, that power was embedded, that power was held by command and control. The power was dormant and imprisoned. It was latent, it was not active, and it was housed within the top-down command and control pyramid. When I realized that, then I understood the sequence. And I understood that transitioning an organization from traditional to a genuine, genuinely empowered organization and balanced organization was, well, a long journey, but it also was a stepped journey. It didn't happen by accident. It happened because of, and I named it, three steps. Three steps. I call them three courageous steps. And they're linked. The first step, as I said last week, is recognizing that the top-down approach is working against the company's success and making the decision to break the inertia of the past. Making the decision to release that imprisoned pyramid, to liberate that imprisoned pyramid of bottom-up empowerment. The decision is the first step. And the decision can be made by a committee. It can be made by a single senior, powerful senior officer who says, I want to do it a different way. Someone like Welch, someone like Joe. He was in charge of Freudenberg And okay, was it Joe May? My God, he was incredible. Might have been Joe May. I'll have to find it later. Mm? The decision is the first step. The second step is to then break the inertia of the past, to actually activate the change. That's gearing up, that's deciding on a methodology, and that is saying, okay, let's work it and break the inertia. That's the second step. The second step is activate the change and see the inertia broken. See those two pyramids split because the blue pyramid will be nested in the yellow. It will be coterminous inside of it because it is prisoner of the old way. And then That step one is saying, I see it, I don't like it, let's go a different way, decision. Step two is the pyramids ratchet apart, even slightly, 
it ratchets apart. That's step two. And step three is to keep going. Step three is to operationalize the moment of that inertia into a process. Make that movement of separation a process of inversion. And that process of inversion is, in fact, your implementation. It's so interesting. So as you are teaching a new methodology, in this case, we're talking about work that makes sense, and you're beginning to both teach differently and getting very different results, teach people thinking and and they begin to think differently and invent differently and own differently and behave differently and see themselves differently and go through an identity shift of their own, you will begin to see this pyramid begin to rotate. The ratchet becomes a rotation, and it will go with its peak, absolutely perpendicular, coterminous with the top-down pyramid, the blue, I mean, sorry, the, the yellow, and the blue pyramid will begin to invert, begin to rotate until its point is looking at 9 o'clock, is looking at, let's do it, 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 8. It's moving towards a complete inversion. And when it is completely inverted, it has not gone 360 degrees, it has gone 180 degrees, so that the top of the pyramid is now facing the down. There is still the yellow pyramid with the apex up. And the blue pyramid has inverted 180 degrees, and it is down. Those are two elements. When that happens, the third element is expressing itself. And the third element is a sphere, or if you will, a circle. If we're talking about triangles, then it's a circle. If we're talking about pyramids, we're talking about a sphere, something with volume. And as this rotation happens, as this rotation happens, the the small circle, we'll deal with the circle, circle begins to appear in the center and it begins to widen and to grow and to widen, to grow as the inversion happens, as the rotation happens until it encompasses the two pyramids and suddenly these pyramids are inscribed in a circle. That's the blending of the two models. So the question isn't, which one do I throw out, which would be a mistake. It would be, it is a mistake to throw out the top-down pyramid. It, is, it was for centuries a mistake to ignore the bottom-up pyramid, but we basically didn't know it was there. We honestly were innocent. We knew that we had too much, but we didn't know where the balance point would come from. We hadn't figured that out. It never occurred to us that we were withholding power while we felt powerful. It never occurred to us that we were controlling what was as powerful as us. 
We didn't do it in order to keep it from happening. We didn't know that the way to create balance was to let the two pyramids exist in inversion of each other and as letting as we let that exist to let this circle express itself to bring us into balance and two pyramids inscribed in a sphere it's called a star tetrahedron and it is the ancient symbol the icon for unity universally you can see it in Mesopotamian art and Egyptian art and Indian art it's all over Indian art if you look at the Sri Yantra you've got how many 172,000 embedded pyramids and it they are all inscribed in a sphere you see you see this on Tonkas everywhere these great stars, either huge or minuscule, but everywhere, like stars in the in the universe, inscribed in a sphere, stars in the night sky. And it's also in Christianity, and it's also in Judaism. Judaism uh, created it. I don't often see a, a Jewish star inscribed in a sphere, and I've often thought, boy, you know, put a sphere around that and... Go further, you know, do the whole thing, not just the separation, but also the blending, the blending of the two opposites, the way we talked about pro-life and pro-choice, the way we talked last week about a good marriage, about working out the rights of others, about sharing and bringing the world into balance. It's happening in our companies, by the way. I think, more rapidly than it's happening in the world itself because there's more control in the companies of the variables that make such a huge difference in our ability to create change, to continue with almost imperceptible shifts. Step three is operationalizing the change so that it becomes the system. It's a conversion change, a series of almost imperceptible shifts as the inertia that held the power of empowerment prisoner dissolves and slowly becomes replaced by a parody that surprises everyone. Gradually it happens. In workplace visuality, this literally begins when hourly employees are put in charge of their corner of the world and they are taught how to change it themselves and claim those corners through, to begin with, the visual wear, borders, address, ID labels, and then through other visual devices. So they're building the language of connectivity while they themselves are connecting with the deep science of their work areas, the science of motion, and also the science of solutions, visual solutions. And in so doing, in visuality, the iron hold of the command and control pyramid, again the yellow, is loosened, and the fluid power of the bottom-up pyramid, the blue, is released, free, free at last, to invert and find its proper position. They are opposites in terms of opposites in balance. 
<laughs> in balance. That's how you create balance. You have two ends, but they are in balance. And slowly the yellow pyramid reorients and travels into its new position as a power partner in the company. And the blue pyramid does the same. And as it turns, this sphere, I call it the unity sphere, that will encircle the entire final form begins to exert itself first as a tiny dot and then as an ever-expanding ring and then a circle and then finally an encompassing sphere. The blending persists as the force within the bottom-up pyramid continues to seek its rightful positioning in the power structure. And that positioning came because the senior executive decided, we will change, we will do this differently, and said, let us make a change and hold on to that. Step two, break the inertia. Step three, keep going. Giving up nothing of its distinctiveness, the command and control the yellow pyramid is finding its own elegant self, its own elegant process. Because if you have an empowered workforce, you as the top-down pyramid need to learn a different set of skills. You are still going to be in charge. You are still going to be in charge of vision, values, systems, structure, strategy, But you now have a new force, a new resource to factor in. And it's a powerful resource. It's an elegant accommodation. And in the end, the two pyramids are nested. One and the other, balanced, perfectly balanced, and yet individually distinctive and individually accountable. Now, there's music to our ears. Not just distinctive, but accountable. Senior management is accountable and value-add associates are accountable. The progress is incremental, but it is also inevitable. It is powered from within. Within each. The result is it's unity, but it's a powerful unity. And the simultaneous definition of both areas of commonality and areas of enduring differences. That's a marriage, isn't it? Areas of common ground and areas of enduring differences. This is the nature of power. Power is to be shared. But it also has this delicious... mm, contribution to make, which is called showing the differences, the diversity. It is complex without being complicated. It is diverse without rejection. We do not, it is not about homogenized. It is not about vanilla. It is about Cherry Garcia. Yum. It is about Rocky Road. It is about, oh, Coffee Toffee Heath Bar Crunch. That was my all-time favorite. It Well, it was really a rival to Cherry Garcia. I would alternate. I'm thinking about the hot summer nights in New York City when I was sitting on my um, fire escape. Uh, and they were 
and I was getting my bike, my 10-speed bike from the liquor store five stories down, which was a fence. I would pay $50 and I'd get another 10-speed bike until the day that my bike was once again stolen and I went to the liquor store and they were trying to sell it to me. (laughs) Hey, that's my bike. I'm not going to pay you twice for it. (laughs) It was a lively society there in the Lower East Side of New York. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, it uh, it was a trip. This was like visiting a foreign land right here in my own country, New York. So I'm talking about a progression, and I'm describing it to you through a series of simple shapes, triangles, pyramids, and I'm explaining it rather smoothly. But the actual process that drives this change in the heart of the organization is facing a host of formal and informal values, formal and informal systems, formal and informal tribal beliefs. The conversion is rarely simple, smooth, or quick. It is sometimes messy. And at the beginning, when things are being sorted, it can be confusing and it is time-intensive. But one way or the other, in my experience anyway, the separation between the two powers is what gives it, it is what gives it its distinctiveness, the separation. Both are powerful, but in distinctly different ways. And the inversion and the final integration, for me, is what it means when companies commit to excellence. It's a potent dynamic. And everybody prefers to move forward in small doses, and you can. You can control the pace. That's part of what senior management is responsible for, is pacing. You can take it slow. Mostly that's because we are worried about that anarchy will result and not unity. But anarchy doesn't result from this. There's no way that a thinking, contributing workforce can become anachronistic because there's no chaos. There's no randomness. There are surprises. Anarchy is nowhere to be found in this progression. There is a danger, and I want to talk a little bit about it now. The danger is something called backsliding, (laughs) backsliding into the old authoritarian paradigm. And that really can only happen if the process is begun but not completed. And that usually happens when a company declares that it wants an empowered workforce and a balanced work culture, but then decides to proceed piecemeal. Piecemeal in several ways. I'm going to now touch upon something that I call participation myths, where you say you're doing it, but you're not really doing it. You're calling it participation, but it, but it ain't. So this piecemeal, doing a little of this and a little of that, but not really changing, is the biggest danger. You might call it cherry-picking. You cannot convert a company to excellence 
through Kaizen Blitzes alone. It can be one of several tools, but it is not the only tool. It's what I call cherry picking. When a company just does the Blitz as its employee engagement tool. It's a beginning, but it's not the beginning of a conversion methodology. It is simply the beginning of putting your toe in the water. The, a conversion is a transformation. One risks diluting the very momentum that the company has gained if the shift is not completed. The momentum that was gained by step one, the decision, and step two, breaking the inertia, keep going. Step three is the longest part, but it is the least radical. The radical step was the decision to change. That was the departure. That was the one that that took guts, in my estimation. Holding on means you're smart. You went from trouble to solution with the decision to change. And that comes from senior management. There's no better moment to exercise the artistry of change than the moment when the company knows the least about what to do and how to do it. Regrettably, colossal mistakes can be made and often do get made. And it's one of the reasons why you work with someone who's done it before. You work, if you can, with an outsider, or maybe you can hire that expertise. You found somebody who's gone through the conversion experience. You hire them and let them work on the inside. They're the OPEX function. They're your strategic leadership They have a vision place. They lived it. They know what it takes. They can keep everyone calm, cool, and collected when it gets tough, and they can keep going. It's really smart. if You you can hire an outside consultant to stick with you for a year and a half or so. I don't believe in these long, long consulting assignments. If you're not teaching something new, after a year and a half, leave. You have to leave and let the company gain its own strength. The way we do it is through long-distance coaching, which we have found to be a phenomenal way to still guide and direct and correct, troubleshoot, but also, because of the distance, let the company find its strength, make its mistakes, and then recover. So important. Consultants out there, you must have an exit strategy that strengthens your client. Otherwise, you're taking their money and not giving them a result that they can live with without you. It's not nice. We don't do things like that. We don't. We play nice. That's what we recommend anyway. So, you have to designate an accountability team to oversee this, a group of skilled, experienced, emotionally sturdy individuals who will remain alert to the predictable pitfalls and who want to be held accountable. We talked about this when we talked about the three-legged stool. What was that? Four, five, six shows ago. The accountability team. In workplace visuality, the outcome that we are looking for for converting the work culture 
is called creating a workforce of visual thinkers. There are other effective implementation technologies. You have to hold on to them. Ours is one, workplace visuality. It's a world-class competency. It's capable of shifting the enterprise into balance, into unity, into transformation, into strength, and catapulting the company into really magnificent profit margins. It's an, it is a way of creating new systems. It's the most effective way that I've found for liberating the individual and also liberating leadership as well. Okay. Liberating the individual will that may be currently embedded in an obedience and control paradigm. Okay. We want to kind of disengage that enough to allow the bottom-up pyramid to invert. Employee involvement does not surface easily or naturally on its own. It just doesn't. You may have a gifted leader who brought it in when he or she established the company. But for a company that is accustomed to command and control, well, some of the deep-rooted organizational factors in a a top-down command and control obedience model is arrogance and abuse of power on the leadership side. But I'll tell you, on the employee side, on the value-add side, it's ballistic anger and or numbness. Both breed a deep sense of helplessness and either entrenched activity, the big push, or entrenched passivity, so-called indifference. You know, managers often complain. I just want to make a few commentaries and and round out our discussion of the training and also of this inversion of the power structure by looking at the two. So I'm going to make some comments now about some training missteps related to the power structure because managers will often complain about the workforce that does not want empowerment. Managers, supervisors, even trainers will remember the many times that they offered hourly employees opportunities to participate and were refused. When the time came, hourly employees would either sneer or they would say nothing. They would simply sit there. Even when managers would say, look, there's a great deal at stake here. We need you to be involved. I mean, some employees might give it a half-hearted try or two, but then in the face of the usual no extra time provided for improvement, value-add associates would wisely write off employee involvement as another empty promise. And after that, managers, not long after that, managers would write off employee involvement because the employees didn't appear to want to be Involved, even when they were given a special invitation. So in the face of that, it, in the face of this seeming indifference or active belligerence, managers would mistakenly conclude that the workforce didn't want participation or didn't appreciate participation or just didn't want to be bothered at all. They don't care. I've even heard it said, excuse me for saying it out loud, they're just lazy. 
I mean, it's just shudder. It makes me shudder when managers conclude that. Of course, they're wrong. They overlook this truth. And this is one of the reasons why I've created the methodologies that I have. That hourly employees don't know how to participate. What does that mean, participate? Well, it's a mystery. It's an unknown. They don't know what this kind of employee involvement means since in their view, well, they've always been involved. They've always been working. They've always been producing. They've always been adding value. They've always been showing up. I already participate. What is it that you want from me now? You've been telling me to show up year after year, job after job, and do your work. You've even said, just do your work, and I do. So what do you want now? Well, management is asking us to do more. What is that more? How? Why are we failing? We don't even know what success looks like. Why are they complaining about us? And managers, of course, from their part, on their part, they see special invitation was given and ignored. Their favorite forms, excuse me, I don't mean to be speaking ill of executives or managers. I'm, I'm, I am painting with a broad brush. But usually senior managers will tell middle managers to do the improvement themselves, or that's number one, or number two, to handpick the best of the lot from the rank and file and assign these high achievers a role in an event-based improvement like a Kaizen Blitz, an ARI, a rapid improvement event. I don't mean to say it's not a useful option, but I'm saying it is not a growing option. It is not an option that will actually align and unify, unify the enterprise or cultivate an empowered workforce. Okay, And it's why we're talking about how you train. Companies in transition from traditional to the new enterprise actually don't know how to create a true participation-based organization. They just don't know how to do it, how to give people an an opportunity regularly and reliably so that people can regularly and reliably contribute their ideas locally on behalf of the corporate intent. But just because the company hasn't learned how to do this doesn't mean that the possibility doesn't exist or that employees will not want to. They do want to. Thinking that employees don't is a problem. It's a mindset that brings us to the wrong conclusions and closes the door on solutions that are genuinely available. These mistakes are made at the earliest phase of the journey. And of course, those mistakes at the earliest part of the journey are sometimes the most difficult to correct. It's the same same thing in workplace visuality. The Chinese proverb is the first step of the journey is the destination. You can make a big mistake. And the mistake that is made, I'll just give you an, the, an, an extreme example, and yet it is, it is illustrative. When 
when you're doing 5S or when you're doing the visual wear and work that makes sense, which is modules 8 and 9 of a 12-module series. 8 and 9 is borders, addresses, and ID labels. The result is the visual wear. And the early mistake is senior management wants it. They've seen it in another plant, and they do it themselves. They do it themselves. They pick the low-hanging fruit because it's so easy. They install the visual wear or their idea of the visual wear, and this is the first mistake right there at the launch. We'll do it ourselves. We know how to do it. We've read the book. We've seen it elsewhere. Find a few associates to do it. And when, when you do that, Getting back to our training approach, you throw away the possibility of the learning. Because when you pick the lowest hanging fruit, then where do your associates begin? Where can they begin? Well, they have to begin on a higher level than you can see. Because you've just picked the lowest fruit. Now they're going to have to conceptualize, in the absence of any kind of thinking strategy, what, what's next. The beauty of visuality is that it is a natural outcome for our brain. Our brain seeks pattern. 50%, here's another data point. 50% of our brain function is dedicated to seeing and interpreting visual information. Visuality, the visual data. We spoke about that early on, but they come together here by saying, don't throw the opportunity away. Visuality is a natural outcome of being a human being. The world is visual because we require it to be visual so that we can understand it because our brains are seeking patterns. And those patterns help us navigate. We will make sense out of any visual circumstance. We just need to find the pattern and then we will step forward once we have a toehold. It isn't random. We just have to Look, what am I seeing? What does it mean? What am I seeing? What does it mean? Ah, got it. Okay, I can do this. Our brains are very active. It's involuntary as our heartbeat. That, that is the way our mind constructs sense. It's one of the reasons why I call this methodology work that makes sense for operators. Because operators function in that environment all the time whether they work in offices, hospitals, or factories. And whether you're a surgeon or a nurse's aide, you are looking for pattern. Natural. Visuality is a natural language for us. It just has to be there. We have to create that language just the way that we have, we have learned to speak. We create that language through a methodology that teaches us how to think, that names what that thinking is. Visual thinking is the ability, my ability and yours, to see the footprint, to recognize information deficits, to recognize the motion, to name the motion that those information deficits trigger. That missing information triggers a certain kind of behavior. And then to eliminate both through solutions that are visual. 
That's visual thinking. And the 12 modules flow from there. And that's what we teach. We teach thinking. Who do we teach it to? We teach it to the eye. We teach it to the individual will. We give that will a wide, wide berth and allow it to exert itself when it is ready. We teach attendance is mandatory, attendance is mandatory, participation is optional. Participation is voluntary. We can't get people to think. We can only create a framework that will allow them to identify with it and become interested. We work really hard <laughs> to be interested without kind of stressing about it. We, we work, that is the purpose of all the examples, because they are seduction themselves. What an interesting visual device. How does it work? Look at this cockpit in a jet fighter plane. What's smart about the placement? Look at that. Look at the spine of the cockpit. The orientation to the right hand, the orientation to the left hand, the economy of space, the using the existing architecture, squeezing out the air, point of use. Hey, let's bring those ideas to your to your own area. Let's do some maps. Let's map out the motion. Let's now, now that we understand how the motion is triggered by the layout of function, let's change the layout of function. Use these 14 principles. So I'm bringing this back, this power inversion, which is one of the great outcomes of the great methodologies, and visuality is definitely one of them, as I do it. Operator-led visuality is about inverting that power, letting the will be voluntarily enrolled in the change. The ownership is vast and complete, and teaching, helping senior managers and supervisors get out of the way. Be present, but don't exert your authority because we are now cultivating an authority that's always been there but hasn't been brought forward as a resource to your organization. That's the power of the individual will of your value-add associates. Let's engage that to bring a greater resource to the organization. The liberation of information is the liberation of the human will. 50% of our brain function is dedicated to seeing and interpreting visual data. What, what are we interpreting? What does that mean? That means making sense out of the visual data. So, I've completed the discussion now of the broad strokes of becoming a brilliant visual workplace trainer and talking about the power inversion, which is so much a part of that. This is eye-driven change, but this eye is the eye of the individual. The letter I capitalized. The next time we meet, we will move forward in the methodology. We'll do what's called the Smart Placement Suite, which is four modules of investigating 
the formula function plus location equals flow. And then developing that into a very, very smart work area. And the ownership is complete. I've told you before, we don't try to motivate or persuade or urge. We teach thinking and then we watch it unfold. We watch people enjoy the mammoth resource of their mind and enjoy its power. Enjoy the flow of thinking. I hope this has been useful to you. I've spent some time in these detours because I feel that once we get this in place about work that makes sense, that you'll be able to listen in a more qualitative way of uh, to the methodology and of my particular bend in it, of how I think that it contributes, what its richness is. Thank you very much. I had a great time with you today. Thank you for taking your time and joining me in this conversation. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. Let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak. We'll be right back.